0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, and I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, <laughs> it is time for another "Lots of Problematic Things Happen Under Queen Victoria's Rule" episode. Yeah,
1: you, you could have a your fave is problematic tag for your fave Queen Victoria and yes. all the, all the problematic things.
0: Yes, I um I always try to differentiate and say that the things I love about Queen Victoria are like the private side of her. her and the things she shared with her family, but I really struggle with so much of her reign uh, because Britain was doing some really awful things during that time. So this is another story of Britain's quest to colonize and conquer the world, believing themselves to be superior to the people who already lived in the places that they were moving into. Uh, In this case, it is about one particular aspect of Britain's efforts in Southern Africa, which culminated in a war with the Zulu Kingdom just in the interest of expectations management, we are not going to cover the entirety of this conflict because it reaches almost into the 20th century. We are focusing on the first segment on it, uh, which led to what most historians would consider the end of the Zulu kingdom. So first we're going to start with a little bit of
1: context on the Zulu people. They still exist, still a major ethnic group in South Africa. So the Black population of South Africa is separated into four primary ethnic divisions. The Soto, the Nguni, the Shangaan, sona and the Venda. The Nguni people, which are the largest group, are then subdivided, subdivided into four other groups. There are the southern Nguni, the Swazi people, the Indabele people, and the northern and central Nguni. Uh, we've mentioned before that, that, that the continent of Africa has thousands and thousands of ethnic groups and languages and diverse peoples, and this is a hallmark of that. So that last group, the northern and central Nguni, are the Zulu-speaking peoples. Uh, So the Zulu language is a subgroup of the larger Nguni language group, and the that is within the other larger group of the Bantu-speaking peoples, which has come up on the show before.
0: Yes, and it doesn't help that part of the problem, we're not going to really discuss this specifically in this episode, is that as... Uh, Europeans moved in and tried to shuffle things around and reorganize various things, it only further complicated those like divisions and subdivisions.
1: Yeah, we talked some about it in our our previous two-parter on Amin Pasha, how when the scramble for Africa was going on, these very arbitrary boundary lines got drawn, sort of grouping people together in a way that, that was not necessarily unified people before, and this is all part of that. Correct.
0: Uh, So Zulu, which is said to mean sky, was also, according to oral history, the name of the founder of the Zulu line, which is believed to have begun in the second half of the 17th century. For many generations, there wasn't really one centralized Zulu nation. There was a combination of nomadic groups and more stationary farming family groups. It was all loosely connected in an agricultural society. But by the late 1700s, these scattered groups of people had begun to consolidate a little bit. So as these smaller
1: groups started to join forces within the larger culture, there were power struggles, there were military actions. In the early 19th century, through a brutal military campaign, a chief named Shaka conquered all the other Zulu chiefs and united the Zulu groups into the Zulu nation. Under Shaka, the Zulu and the natal Nguni, which was a neighboring group, joined forces. And this combination of peoples formed what came to be known as the Zulu Kingdom or the Zulu Empire.
0: When Shaka died in 1828, the empire that he had built lost a little bit of its power, but it still remained united. But as the 19th century pressed on, European settlers and colonists moved in greater numbers into the area. By the 1870s, British interests in South Africa directly threatened the Zulu Kingdom.
1: For one, Great Britain saw Africa's local indigenous population as just inherently less developed and thus exploitable as labor. In 1866, diamonds were discovered along the Orange River, Gold was also known as a resource in the region, and Britain wanted the land that had these resources and people who could work to deliver them into the hands
0: of the British. Second, British was interested in a power grab that would break down the existing African states. Again, they had had all of this long, ongoing... Battles to develop their structure, uh, and it wanted to break down all of the structure that had been built in that process and put it all under British rule. And this, of course, ties into that first reason we just mentioned, where they wanted the land and the people to work as labor, but also to the larger push for Great Britain to rule as much of the world as possible.
1: Third, there were land disputes involving the Boer population. These were South Africans, primarily of Dutch descent, but they could also be French Huguenot or German. After the Dutch East India Company had established a headquarters at the Cape of Good Hope in the 1650s, immigration had been heavily encouraged. And as this colony had gotten bigger, relations with the indigenous people living in the area were not good.
0: In the early 19th century, after British possession of the colony led to fundamental disagreement, between Great Britain's policies and the Boers, more than 10,000 members of the Boer colony moved to other areas outside of British rule, including Natal on the eastern side of South Africa, which was right up against Zulu territory. And as the Boers attempted to spread their land holdings into Zululand, they claimed they needed more land for farming, tensions between the two groups just escalated at a continuing pace. In 1872,
1: a man named Cetshwayo became the Zulu king. He was about 46 at the time that this happened, and his father, Mpande, had ruled before him.
0: Under Mpande, the Zulu nation had lost some of its power. As a youth, Setshuayu had been involved in significant conflicts. When he was just 12 or 13, and we don't know because his exact birth date is not known, he fought against the Boers as they moved to take over Zulu land. And then in his 20s, he went to battle against the Swazi people along with his fellow Zulu warriors as the two groups fought over the valley territory of Pongola.
1: He also led one faction of a violent civil war against his brother, in which Setshwayo was the victor. He was recognized as heir to the throne after the conflict was over. While he became king in 1872, he had actually been doing a lot of the work of king for more than a decade.
0: Yes, yeah, as his father had aged, he had really just taken on more and more responsibility. And while he was recognized as a sovereign of his people by the British, Setshwayo was not interested in giving any of his authority up and accepting British rule. So he began amassing his forces. Eventually, Setshwayo had tens of thousands of well-trained men ready to fight. Estimates place the number somewhere between 40,000 and 60,000, although an exact count is not known. And through this disciplined development of the Zulu Nation's might, Setshwayo came to be seen as a very real threat to British interests in the area.
1: Transvaal, which was a Boer Republic, was annexed by Great Britain in 1877. And from that point on, it became clear that British efforts were going to be centered around making South Africa a federation of white colonies, with the intent of disbanding the existing kingdoms of Africa and then ruling over their people.
0: In 1878, the British, concerned at the immense military power of the Zulu Kingdom, started a campaign to break down the nation's power through propaganda. Setshwayo, the local administrators claimed, was a tyrant with a military that he could barely control and his people would not work in British colonies. They also claimed that the Zulu nation had threatened Natal with military action.
1: Next up, we're going to talk about a British man who seemed dead set on getting into a war with Setshwayo. It was Sir Bartle Frere. We're going to stop first for a quick sponsor break.
0: Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. On March 29th, 1815, Sir Henry Bartle Edwards Frere was born in Wales. He was not considered a sir yet, but that'll come later. As a young man fresh out of college he became a civil servant in Britain's administration of India. He rose through the ranks, and he was considered good at his job. During the Sepoy Uprising, which we talked about in a previous episode, Frere sent troops from his own region to aid his fellow British administrators, and he was rewarded with a knighthood for those efforts.
1: He served in Mumbai for five years as a British governor in the 1860s, and then he was appointed to the India Council back home in England, In 1876, he was granted the title of baronet, and the following year, he was made governor and high commissioner of the Cape Colony. The plan to merge the Boer Republic and British South Africa fell
0: under his purview. The situation that Frere walked into was already loaded with conflict. Not everyone in the area was on board with this plan to confederate all of the colonies, The Boers of Transvaal were actually considering making a move to become an independent nation rather than joining with the British colonies. And the colonists uh, that were part of Britain already did not wholly buy into this plan either. To make matters worse, Frere's boss resigned at the beginning of 1878, leaving Frere to deal with the growing tension in the region. It was under
1: Frere's direction that the Zulu came to be characterized as hostile, hostile. The Zulu Kingdom was autonomous and Frere believed that if they went unchallenged, they would get in the way of his mission to
0: achieve his confederation directive. At the end of 1878, an ultimatum was issued by Frere. Sachuayo had to disband his entire army in the space of a month. The Zulu Kingdom was also expected to pay reparations to insults that the British claimed that the Zulu had made against them.
1: In truth... Frere's ultimatum was made with no expectation that it would be met. It wasn't even realistic to expect the Zulu Nation to be able to comply with it. It was really just a checklist exercise so that Frere could say, in effect, we offered them terms and they were not met before engaging in a military conflict.
0: And this was really all aimed at justifying this action to leadership back in Great Britain, who had, in fact, not wanted to get into a war in South Africa. Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli had specifically wanted to avoid it. And Colonial Secretary Sir Michael Hicks Beach had actually written to Frere to make it very clear that the British government was already dealing with Russia at the time, they had their own problems going on, and they could not take on another conflict.
1: At the beginning of January 1879, this ultimatum expired and British troops invaded the Zulu Kingdom under the command
0: of Lord Chelmsford. So, yeah, even though Great Britain didn't want it... Uh, Frere did, and he moved forward with it. This is one of those things that it's worth pointing out. This was not uncommon in uh, the British move to colonize everywhere. There were, uh, you know, very, very great distances involved, and there were men that were acting with autonomy, sometimes against British orders, uh, because there really was no one to intercede, and it was expected that they understood the local situation better. So they kind of had a little bit of leeway to do these sorts of things. Initially, Chelmsford's charge into Zululand was hindered by nature. There were really heavy rains in January that made overland travel difficult, and the high grasses of the landscape also made it almost impossible to get a visual bearing on location.
1: For some reason, in spite of these poor conditions, he continued with this advance and continued in a somewhat reckless manner because the British troops were not using scouts or sentries as they made their way across this grassy, muddy landscape.
0: As to why those precautions were abandoned, it was because Chelmsford was completely dismissive of the Zulu military. And that sentiment and that sort of condescending attitude really echoed down through his troops. At one point, Chelmsford wrote, quote, If I am called upon to conduct operations against them, I shall strive to be in a position to show them how hopelessly inferior they are to us in fighting power, although numerically stronger.
1: First, Chelmsford led the center column of a three-part invasion across the Mizanyanti River, which was something the British knew as the Buffalo River. They established a depot, and the British forces
0: pushed from there into the east. The right column of the British forces headed toward Ulundi, seat of the royal family, and the left column headed to the Tugela River to block Zulu forces from crossing it. On the Zulu side of the conflict, the
1: initial plan was to try to avoid a military engagement. This had been the case when the British started their disinformation campaign against Sichwayo and the Zulus in the first place. And they claimed that the Zulu nation had threatened Natal, So Chwayo's response was to call his military to retreat deeper into their own land. It was a clear indication that he did not want to provoke the British.
0: Yeah, as he was realizing that people were saying he was being threatening, he was like, come away from the borders, come away from the borders. We don't want them to think we're trying to threaten anybody. Uh, he was really trying to save his people by avoiding getting into any sort of uh, aggressive situation. Even though the ultimatum from Britain had been insulting and impossible to fulfill, Setshwayo was still hoping that they could find a resolution that did not involve combat. He had ordered his men to take defensive positions only and not to make an offensive move to attack. But as the British
1: advanced, it became more and more clear that a conflict was just unavoidable. Chelmsford moved into Isandwana on January 20th to set up camp. There was a small group of Zulu men who resisted this incursion, and, Ch- and Chelmsford thought that this was just the primary military force of all of the Zulu, so he was completely incorrect in that assumption.
0: Chelmsford next took about half of his men to an engagement 15 kilometers away, and this left Colonel Henry Pauline in charge temporarily. The following day, Colonel A.W. Durnford arrived to assume command. And when Durnford went after a small Zulu party that had been foraging nearby, he followed them right into a force of 20,000 Zulu men. And his men were disorganized and unprotected. So these unprotected men were basically sitting ducks.
1: There's actually some conflicting writing about how the whole battle played out. According to one version, the Zulu force had not intended to battle that day, but felt that they had to move defensively when confronted by Durnford. And then another take on the situation gives the Zulu more credit for basically machination, like the view that this Zulu trap lured Dunford into it with a small resistance party while the 20,000 men waited to spring that trap.
0: In either case, there were fewer than 2,000 British troops at that location, and there were these some 20,000 Zulus. And those British troops had no protective structure, and they were taken completely by surprise because they were not expecting to engage in a massive conflict at that time. And when Durnford attempted to retreat to save his camp, the Zulu forces filled in the space between the British soldiers and that camp, and they cut them off before they could do so.
1: The Zulu used a military tactic that's sometimes attributed to their former leader, Shaka, in terms of its invention, It was called the Horns of the Buffalo and was characterized by the Zulu fighting force encircling the enemy fighters with two lines of men, which were the horns. They reached out from each side of the main fighting force, which was the chest, to work their way around their opponent.
0: Yeah, and then they would kind of cut them off from any, any means of escape, and in this case, also from their camp. More than 800 British troops and 500 African auxiliary troops were killed by the Zulu army in the brutal hand-to-hand combat that followed. To compound the loss, the Zulus uh, had captured the camp and they had confiscated as many as 1,000 weapons in this raid, further bolstering their own army's power. Very few British troops survived this encounter as the Zulu did not take prisoners.
1: Sichuayo realized that there was no way after the Zulu's success in this battle that the British would ever work with him and his people to forge a negotiation.
0: Yeah, he kind of, it was one of those things where while his people were celebrating, he realized that this really spelled the end of any possibility that they could work something out. Uh, and as for Great Britain, when word arrived about what had happened, uh, the country stood in shock that a culture that they believed to be intellectual inferior had so soundly defeated their troops. Uh, You know, they used largely spears. Some of them were armed with firearms, but they just considered them to be these, you know, wild people that didn't have any technology. And in fact, they were very advanced and very smart and had military tactics. Chelmsford was actually one of Queen Victoria's favorites. So although he made some terribly blundering missteps and basically, like, left his men behind unsecured and led to this disastrous outcome of the battle, he was protected by Benjamin Disraeli.
1: For his part, Chelmsford claimed that his troops had been undersupplied with ammunition and also shifted the blame to Durnford. was an epic effort on Chelmsford's part to cover his own tail.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk about how that worked out in the CODA, and it's a little dispiriting. Uh, We are about to delve into another battle, though, and talk a little bit more about how Great Britain framed all of these events to best advantage. But first, we will take a little bit of a break and hear from one of our sponsors. Hey,
1: Ollie, we have some exciting news.
0: Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, you sounded so calm and it's not a calm situation at all.
0: sistine chapel so it's going to be a fantastic trip
1: you can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com scroll down to the roman florence trip with stuffy Mist missed in history class or come over to our social media we have posts about it there too
0: there's a city far away a fiction podcast The richest, most powerful place on earth. On an epic scale. Tuman Bay. Tuman Bay. Bay. A vast empire threatened by rebellion. Power is everything, power gives everything. We have to get away from this place, or we will die too. (laughs) The truth makes us strong. Tuman Bay is our destiny. History and fantasy collide. They are among us. Who? First a few, and now many. From creators John Scott Dryden and Mike Walker. The only thing I ask of you is total and complete loyalty. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tulin Bay. Be sharp and die! Listen to all episodes of Tumen Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Emboldened by the success of the raid at Isandlwana and aware that there was no chance a non-aggressive settlement could be struck, Zulu forces planned a second attack. And this time, the target was a place known to the Zulus as Kwajimu. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing that. Uh, But it was known to the British, and you may have seen it if you have ever studied any history of the area, as Rourke's Drift. And this was the British depot on the Mizanyathi River that we mentioned them setting up earlier. One of Sechwayo's brothers
1: led this raid against Sechwayo's wishes, and the hope was that they would surprise the British troops as they had at Isdwana. But word had been
0: sent ahead to the depot, so the British were prepared this time. The ensuing battle lasted almost 12 hours. In the end, more than 500 Zulu warriors were killed. Rourke's drift has actually been written about extensively as a great victory for British forces. And in terms of odds, it really did defy them. This was the case where about 140 British men were fighting against several thousand of Sichuayo's well-trained warriors, and the British managed to fend them off.
1: Eleven Victoria's Crosses were awarded after the Battle of Wurk's Drift. This was more than have been awarded for a single engagement before or since. It was lauded as an incredible feat of heroism by the British, but the fanfare hid the fact that the Battle of Izzanwana And the Zulu conflict in general were incredibly costly, both in terms of human lives and in terms of funding.
0: And after more than 40 years of civil service, Frere, who you remember really wanted this conflict, was blamed for the failures in South Africa. He was ordered back to England in 1880 when negotiation efforts to bring the Confederation Plan to fruition had completely failed.
1: But Rook's drift continued to be inflated as a great and important victory, an effort made in large part to try to minimize what had happened earlier at Isandwana. Chelmsford, who had handled things so poorly, was recalled from Africa, and he returned to England where he continued his his own disinformation campaign to minimize his own errors and throw Durnford under the bus.
0: After Isandlwana and Rourke's drift, Great Britain launched a robust military effort in the Zulu territories to just end this conflict once and for all. Their first engagement, which took place on March 28, 1879 at Taubane, was unsuccessful. But the day after that loss, on March 29th, another push was made by the British. And this effort, which came to be known as the Battle of Kambula, gained the British Army a victory.
1: From that point on, British troops worked their way through the area to systematically take down the remaining Zulu army. It took several months for the Zulu War to reach its conclusion, though, that finally came on July 4, 1879. Troops attacked Ulundi, the site of the royal residence of Sichwayo. Sichwayo escaped and fled, but he was captured again several weeks later and exiled at Cape Town.
0: After Great Britain had seized control of Zululand, it was parceled out, divided between Britain and the long-term enemies of Setsuayo. Three years later, the former Zulu king was actually allowed to travel to Britain. He wanted to restore the Zulu monarchy, and he was willing to work within Britain's political system to do so. And in those three years, that Zulu kingdom had broken into 13 smaller pieces, and it had basically been a constant series of battles ever since. So the British, as well as Suchwayo, were kind of interested in setting up some sort of order once again.
1: So while he was granted permission to restore the monarchy, this was, of course, not the leadership power it had been. When he returned to the royal village in Ulundi, it led to another civil war the defeat of Setshwayo and his people in 1883 is often cited as the end of the Zulu kingdom.
0: Yeah, it wasn't the end of his line. He had a son, uh, but that becomes that second part of the story that I referenced at the top of the episode. Setshwayo died in the British Zulu Native Reserve on February 8th of 1884. And while many of his people believe that he was actually poisoned, his cause of death was recorded as a heart attack.
1: And as a sad coda to this whole story, Lord Chelmsford was rewarded amply, even though he was kind of a weaselly underperformer in this whole story. He was promoted to general. The Queen gave him awards. He was made lieutenant of the Tower of London.
0: This is one of those parts where I get so mad at Queen Victoria because she just loved him, even though he was horrible. Uh, And of course, this was not the end of conflict or strife in South Africa, but it is where we are wrapping today's episode just noting that the Zulu kingdom at this point was basically completely gone, even though the Zulu people continued.
1: In 2000, a historian named David Rattray found an album containing 24 sketches and 100 watercolors that were made by one of the British soldiers at Rourke's Drift. That soldier was William Whitelack Lloyd. These sketches and paintings were all made during Lloyd's time with the 1st Battalion, 24th Regiment, as the group traveled in South Africa, and they show the landscape of Zululand during this period. The whole lot was auctioned by Sotheby's in 2012 for just under 50,000 British pounds.
0: Yeah, you can look at uh, several of those. The Sotheby's listing still exists, and I'll include it in the show notes, and you can see some of these these sort of moments that he captured while they were traveling. There was also a documentary that came out uh, some years back that the BBC did that really did kind of reframe uh, the Battle of Rourke's Drift and kind of, uh, the possibility that some of the people that got, uh, awards for that engagement were not necessarily the people that maybe deserved them. And it was a big, um, controversy among historians who specialize in this particular piece of history. Uh, it got a lot of hackles up. So that is also worth looking into as it's an interesting take on the specifics of that battle.
1: Do You also have some listener mail for us. I do. It's important
0: listener mail because I messed up. Uh, it's from our listener, Liz. Uh, and she is writing about our Lon Cheney podcast. Uh, and she says, thank you for your excellent inf- and informative podcast. I always enjoy listening and they make household chores and traveling for work much more enjoyable. I'm a certified interpreter in American Sign Language. And she says where she is, uh, but we don't like to give away personal information. And the agency I work for serves a large area around the city. In my affiliation with ASL and the Deaf community community. Uh that's what prompted me to write you. I enjoyed your episode on Lon Chaney and was pleased that you noted his communication with his deaf parents as instrumental in developing his acting skills. However, I do have two things I'd like for you to know about sign language and deafness. In the episode, the phrase deaf mute was used to describe Chaney's parents. Uh, most of the deaf people I know take offense at this term. If a deaf person is unable or chooses not to speak, the preferred term is nonverbal. The same term is often applied to people with autism or other disabilities who do not use spoken language. I understand Understand that the term mute makes sense to hearing people because we do not hear spoken communication from a mute person. Deaf people, however, often do not see their deafness or lack of spoken language as a disability. Mute implies that they are unable to communicate when the truth is that deaf people have a rich language and culture that they are very proud of. Nonverbal demonstrates that they do not communicate via spoken language without giving the impression that they are unable to communicate at all. Uh, She goes on for some more specifics with that and then I want to pick up a little bit later. Uh, There was one other point in the episode that I wanted to to make a note of, also regarding Cheney's upbringing and deaf parents. In the show, Cheney was described as learning to communicate without language through gesture, signing, and facial expression. What this sentence describes is a visual gestural language rather than an oral, oral, a-u-r-a-l language. There are more than 200 known sign languages around the world, with some estimates approaching 400. Signed languages incorporate visual cues to communicate what is often expressed using inflection and tone of voice in spoken language. Body language and facial expression are integral parts of communication in visual gestural languages, and it's possible that Cheney's family used informal home signs instead of a formal sign language, such as ASL, but I disagree with the description of gesture signing and facial expression as communicating without language. Uh, and Liz is very nice. She says she didn't take offense. She just wanted to make that clear. Um, and that's totally my fault. Part of it is that um, I know what happens to me sometimes, and I'm always trying to get better at this, is that when you're looking at old sources, they will always use old terminology. And sometimes my brain does not update. And that is exactly what happened on that one. Um, because it was such a small part, and I was so excited to talk about his movies. So that's my oversight, and I apologize. Um, for a little bit more clarity on on me trying to explain him speaking with his mother particularly when she was very very ill uh, without language they had reached a point where she had gotten so sick she couldn't move much so even the the sign language that they had used prior to that sounds like it it really was not in use at that point in time so there they were kind of having to find all new ways for him to communicate with her because she was almost completely non-mobile. Um, so it's, that might give a little more clarity to my poor choice of language there. It's still a poor choice of language, but I just wanted to explain the genesis of it. So thank you so much, Liz, because that's important stuff to remember. Um, and I always need the reminders, heaven knows, so I'm going to always try to do better. Uh, yeah. I think I she also suggested
1: a Deaf President Now episode. What?
0: Uh, which we have in the archive. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we actually did an episode on Deaf President Now a while back. Uh, we may end up, we could maybe push that into classics at some point in the near future so that we make sure it gets out there. Sound good? Yeah. Cool. If you want to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast at housedoveworks.com. We are also uh, on virtually all social media as Missed in History. You can also come to our website, which is Uh, And there you will find every episode we have ever done, including that Deaf Presidents Now episode, as well as show notes on any of the episodes Tracy and I have worked on together. We encourage you, come and visit us at mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T Mobile for Business The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the Restless Ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I just realized that the first letter of every line of this review spells help me. <laughs> It seems like everyone's a critic these days, blessing the world with our slightest opinions, all on our own mini-platform. I'm Scott Janovitz, And I'm Greg Conley. We're the hosts of Citizen Critic, a new podcast where we critique the critics and review the reviews of your favorite movies, music, television, toasters, toiletries, and paint colors. Listen to Citizen Critic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.